Okay, so just a bit of a recap. Chronicles was most likely written either during the Babylonian exile or shortly after the Babylonian exile. And um, so what does that mean? Where, where are we in the history? So the Jews have been uh, freed from Egypt and they have been good and then they have been bad. They have been good and then they, and they have been bad. And there's this vicious cycle of, of good kings and bad kings uh, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And then, um, you know, either Hezekiah or Josiah, they, they come in and they, you know, they bring in reformation. And then, um, well, finally God has had enough. And here is probably uh, one of the most disturbing, not disturbing, but we have to really wrestle with the issue of, um, uh-oh, um, of how God does things. And the cornerstone of all theology is that God is good and he's everything that he does for us um, and to us is good. So we have to get this into our heads. Um, when this was written, along with part, part of Psalms as well. So Psalms obviously was written, a large majority of it was written by David. And I believe that it was word for word uh, David's words because you can really see his heart. But it was probably rewritten down the same time that First and Second Chronicles was written uh, or um, transcribed during the same time. Because we have bits in, in Psalms that says, you know, by the rivers of Babylon... And so, how did that, you know, so we know that part of Psalms was written in Babylon too. So there was a, a reintroduction of, of literature. And again, I think that this was written during the time of the exile. So uh, again, during this whole cycle of being good and being naughty, uh, they, the, the Israelites, both the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, they all get hauled off to Babylon. Actually, just basically the, north, the southern kingdom of Judah gets hauled off to Babylon. And um, this is when they, they begin to really write stuff down. Now, here's the really difficult part. Uh, when this was being written, it was all in their understanding that them being exiled into slavery was God's will. I know. So... They're, this is what this is the reality that they are living in, and this is the the reality that they're recording the scriptures in, that they they have been put into slavery, or they have been uh, taken from their land, and they have been uh, some of the slavery wasn't what we would think of slavery. Some of the slavery was I just really need a good accountant, and so so these guys are really good at being accountants, and so they just didn't get paid for you know crunching numbers and things like that. Um, but they were writing it from the, the, the idea that uh, God used the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire as his instruments of judgment. So how do we feel about that? It's a tough one. How do we feel about it? That's, that's what the scriptures say. Kim is just grimacing over here. It's so great. I know, huh? Does that mean that it's kind of like more biased, like angry? Like who's angry? God? No. Well, Yeah. 
it, yes. <laughs> um, it, the, the, they would say both. Yeah, it's tough. Um, let me see if I can get to the point where he talks about this. All right, let's just start off in chapter, I believe it's in chapter, um, no, it's going to be back in Kings is when he talks about this. Yeah, we're in the 10th century, so yeah, you're around the 900s, so um, the, the royal um, empire is uh, David and, and Saul, David, and Solomon are around 900. And then in seven, this is really difficult, um, in 722 is when the Assyrians came in and destroyed the northern empire of Israel. They get hauled off first. And then in 586, the Babylonians come in and they take the rest of everybody else off. That's the second empire. They're both, um, they're both uh, from the area of Iraq. So the, the, there's very little difference between the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They just kind of basically changed titles and changed cities, but they're pretty much the same people. Um, so we have... Um, it's, it's larger than, what we're, the, the time period that we're talking about is, is longer than the history of the United States. From the time of, of David until the exile is, what, it's um, 300 years, 400 years? It's 400 years. And here's the even rougher part. The reason why they all get hauled off is because of... Um, um, David's grandson, Rehoboam. So Rehoboam commits these sins and he begins to plant these seeds. And again, this is, this is what I want to talk about. It is the sins of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Jeroboam split the, the dynasty. He split the two empires apart. Uh, he, he's the one that made the split between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. He's the one responsible for it. And the word says is because of the sins of Jeroboam that they all get hauled off to Assyria. So not only, not only does an entire nation uh, have to face this type of discipline, this type of judgment, or whatever you want, however you want to frame it, not only do they have to, to, to go through this for being disobedient or worshiping false gods, it's all from... Uh, the seed of one man's sin, the sin of Jeroboam. That's the thing that caused everybody to, to go into slavery. That's another huge thought that we've got to think about. The actions of one person, the sin of one person, caused an entire nation to fall. Again, that's a hard concept for us to get through our heads, but think about it this way. Um, if you are the head of a house, or in your house, you know, you, most of us are parents or, you know, grandparents or whatever. Um, if you sin, does it affect your children? It does. And so that's the main point that it's trying to get across. Um, in our culture, we say things like, um, it's okay that I sin because it, 
what I'm doing, it's not hurting anybody. Have you heard this? It's okay that I have this little secret sin or this whatever this, you know, this thing is. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, then it's okay. Uh, and then we can easily get into uh, generational curses and all that kind of stuff, uh, which I don't think we want to talk about tonight. But um, those are the things that we need to tackle, and we need to actually put it into our context today in, in um, the New Testament context. All right. So yeah, we are, uh, we're looking at the, the 10th century, um, the 8th century, and the 6th century. Those are, we're looking at three centuries tonight, which is kind of a, a huge amount. All right. Okay, this is in this is in Kings 24, Second uh, Kings 24. I know we're about Chronicles, but this is going to have to. This will help you understand what's going on. Second uh, Kings chapter 24, verse one. During uh, uh, Jericho Kim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon. King of Babylon invaded the land, and uh, Jericho Kim became his vassal for three years. All right, so the Babylonians, uh, their strategy was not to come in and burn everything to the ground. They wanted tax dollars. So if you behaved, and if you paid your taxes, and if you were a puppet king, then they just left you alone. And that's, that was their strategy. But uh, what does the Bible call the Jewish people? It has something to do with their necks. They're the stiff-necked people. And so... <laughs> They don't, like, uh, they don't like anybody telling them what to do. Um, so Jehoiakim became a puppet king for three years, but then he changed his mind and he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, which would be like um, Mexico choosing off the United States. I mean, it's just, uh, uh, the Babylon is just, it's a juggernaut. It's just an unstoppable Force and so he thinks that he can choose them off, and then the Lord uh, sent Babylonia, Armenia, Moabite, the Ammonite raiders against him. He sent them to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants and the prophets. Surely these things have happened to Judah according to the Lord's command, in order to remove them from. His presence because of the sin of Manasseh and all that he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. It's tough, huh? What do you guys think? All right, I'll keep going. As for the other events of Jehoiakim's reign all, and all that he did, are they not written in the, the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Which we do not have, by the way. I wish we had these books, but we don't. When you read these, there's all these annals and these other chronicles, and we don't have them. They, they, just, they went missing. So who knows what, what, they, what it says about them. Maybe someday we'll find them. Um, 
uh, Jehoiakim uh, rested with his fathers, and Jehoiakim's uh, son succeeded him as king. The king of the king of Egypt did not march out from his own country again, because the king of Babylon had taken all of his territory from the Wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates River. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king. This is the other guy's son. And he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. His mother's name was uh, Nehushta, daughter of Elan, whatever. She was from Jerusalem. Uh, Okay, here we go. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem. They laid siege on it, and Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, uh, his mother and his attendants, his nobles and his officials, they all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the, reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiakim as prisoner uh, as the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed all the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace, and he took away the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made from the, for the temple of the Lord. He carried into exile all of Jerusalem, all of the officers, all the fighting men, all the craftsmen, all the artisans, uh, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest of the people were left in the land, Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. He took uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, officials. Uh, the king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire forces of 7,000 fighting men, strong, fit for war. Okay, let's see. Let's see if I can get to some, skip the details here. All right, you know what? You basically, you get the idea, right? And do we remember, uh, okay, God said it was because of, um, of what Manasseh did. You guys remember who Manasseh was? Okay, so Rehoboam and Jeroboam planted the seed of discord. Manasseh is the one that pushed it over the limit. King Manasseh was between uh, King Hezekiah and King Josiah. He's the king right in the middle. And he thought it would be a great idea to sacrifice his, his son to a god to get favor. And that's what pushed God over the limit. And that's what caused this, this, this final siege of, of Jerusalem. And they looted every single ounce of gold and treasure out of the treasury. The, all of, I'll get into this uh, in two weeks. But the, the temple, Sol, or actually David's temple, and they, we call it Solomon's temple, but really it's David's temple. David is the one that had the plans for it. He's the one that financed it. Uh, but he just didn't have, uh, it, God didn't allow him to build it because he had bloody hands, because he was a man of war, and his son Solomon was a, was a man of peace. Uh, but the whole thing was lined with gold, and the Babylonians took it all out, everything. I mean, it was just, it, it, it's, it's one of the, it would be, it's one of the seven, it was one of the seven wonders, well, it wasn't, but it was like one of the seventh wonders of the world. It was something that supposedly no one had ever seen before and it just completely gets stripped away, and then they all get hauled off. All right, now let's get, let's get back to Chronicles. Chronicles starts off, and again, uh, this is written most likely in captivity. And um, there's two ways of, um, there's two approaches to reading scripture. 
There is an inspirational approach, like a spiritual approach. It's like you're reading it to get inspiration or you're reading it to hear God's voice. Um, you're looking for answers. You're looking to uh, become more Christ-like. Uh, you need some help in the gray areas. So there's a, there's a traditional, we'll call it a traditional uh, view when we read the scriptures. And then there is, um, there, there's an academic approach, uh, which the academic approach, they don't read it for inspiration. In fact, the academic approach, in most cases, um, they don't even believe that it's true. They don't believe that it's in, the inspired word of God. And that's, this is probably, I don't know, when I first encountered this, it surprised me that, you know, that there's people that study the Bible inside out, but they don't even believe in God. And it, 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 it floored me for a second, just to understand. That was just like, really, you could read that and not believe in God? And so basically, uh, modern Bible scholars, they're going to read it differently than, than we do. Um, but we can actually, if, I, I believe if you combine the two, you can actually learn more about God's heart, and you can learn more about the text and what it has to tell us. Um, like, for example, we'll be getting into this in two weeks. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes says that um, the major theme is that it's meaningless. Everything is meaningless is the major theme of Ecclesiastes. Everything under the sun. And um, so that means that you're meaningless. <laughs> that means that Jesus was meaningless. So this is the word of God, right? Is it true? Well, yeah, of course it's true. It's the inspired word of God. Um, but if I'm dealing with somebody that is struggling with depression or they're struggling in life, um, do I want to point them to the book of Ecclesiastes or, or, to, or to the book of Job? No. We, no, we don't. And so, actually, if I can read the text, and this is... Uh, it's, if, if you, they call it exegesis. It's not Jesus leaving the building. It's just if you read the text in, it, in its historical context, either historically or literally, then you can really understand what's going on. Do we know who wrote the book of, of Ecclesiastes? Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, the wisest man on the planet. And uh, as we will learn, uh, at the end of Solomon's life, Guess what he did? Yeah, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so with that understanding, Ecclesiastes was written by a fallen man that was bitter and disgruntled. Now, yes, there is truth in Ecclesiastes. Uh, for there is nothing new under the sun. That is a truth. But to say that our very existence is meaningless, well, we have to struggle through that because I don't necessarily agree with that, because the Bible's main theme is that God is love and that, there, that we all are here for, we're here for a purpose. We, have, we are designed for a destiny. We are his children. And so that, we're going to be applying some of that, those types of thoughts. Okay, when we read this, one, it was written in captivity. Um, two, uh, Chronicles is a short summary of Samuel, of 1st and 2nd Kings. And so what they focus on 
are not the things that you and I would necessarily be interested in because all the juicy details are not in there. So we don't have, we don't have uh, Bathsheba in here. We don't have the death of Uriah in here. We don't have all the good parts. And so when we read it um, from a traditional inspired view, we need to see Chronicles as these, this is the, these are the areas of what God's really concerned about. Yeah, he doesn't want you having an affair. He doesn't want you murdering your best friend. Those are quite common sense type of, of stuff. But Chronicles is amazing in that it, it boils everything down and that this is, this is what God's heart is all, it, it's all about the, basically the condition of the heart, not actually the actual sin that you committed. So it begins with um, 10 chapters of genealogies, which... It's, it could be maddening. So uh, we can skip, unless you want to go through all the genealogies, we can skip all the genealogies. They are fascinating, by the way, if you, if you can handle it. So we're going to look at chapter 10, where I started with on Sunday. All right. Let's look at Saul. Saul's the first king first anointed king. Um, technically, he's the second king. Um, there was a guy in Judges, I forgot his name already, but uh, he decided to crown himself. But Saul is the first king that is um, anointed and crowned by um, the prophet, or priest and prophet. There's three major offices that we need to know about and know their function at beginning at this point. There's the, the office of, of the king, and the king is kind of like our president. He is responsible for protecting the country. That's his number one job, is, is, the, is, is, is he's a warrior. Uh, the, the kings of Israel were meant to protect. They were meant to be warriors, and um, either they, they protect from, from foreign enemies, or they were even commissioned to attack. Again, then this is, in our modern construct, this is a very difficult thing to get into our heads. Okay, so God actually wants them to go and to take land away from other people. Uh, biblically, the Bible's gonna say yes, because uh, the promised land was everything from the Euphrates all the way down to the Nile in Egypt. And so that's a big spread of land which was promised to the people of Israel. And the amazing thing about King David is he actually accomplishes it. He actually takes all that land. And he only holds it for a very short amount of uh, time. And then that's it. We, they never see it again. And so, um, okay, so Saul is the king. Um, it, the details are all in uh, First Kings. Um, and it, 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 the story about Saul in Chronicles, it begins with his death. So what the writer of 1 Chronicles wants you to know, he doesn't care about, he, he doesn't care about how or why Saul was anointed. All he wants you to know about is that he failed, is that he died. And it begins with his death. It doesn't begin with his installation. Um, and then, unfortunately, his... Um, his, his three other sons die along with him. 
the most tragic of which is Jonathan. And Jonathan is the character that I didn't get to get to on Sunday. Jonathan uh, is honestly, he is, the, he is the unsung hero of these whole stories. Uh, he is selfless. He is Christ-like. He, um, he honors his father, even though his father is a nut job. Because at this time, Saul has gone completely crazy. Uh, in, in, in 1 Kings, it says, and this is another tough one that we have to talk about. Uh, in 1 Kings, it says that the Lord sent an evil spirit to torment. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's like, really? <laughs> the Lord sent an evil, evil spirit to torment Saul. So did God make Saul crazy? I know. Tough, huh? Well, we're gonna, we'll hash these things out. I don't think that that's how God works, but that's how it gets recorded, and we'll, we'll flesh this out. Okay, so, um, so Jonathan is the unsung hero because he is, in this, he is in this tension that he actually hears from God. He is the oldest son of the king, so he is a prince. So guess who is the next king? He is. Yet he's able to see something about David where he knows that David is God's chosen one. I don't know how you do that. Like who in their, there is, who in their right mind would do something like that? If you were, if you were in a position to inherit um, unspeakable wealth because Saul was very, even though he was nuts, at this point he was very successful. He was very wealthy and he had power, uh, and then Jonathan is like, Jonathan is in line to inherit all of it, yet he hands it over without any fight to his best friend, David. Who does that? And to make matters worse, um, the Philistines, when they kill Saul in this point, um, Jonathan knows that his father is crazy. He knows that this is a losing battle. They know that they're going to lose. And Jonathan even knows that God's presence has left Saul at this time, meaning that he's lost the anointing. Whatever the anointing is, that, that superpower, that supercharged uh, blessing from God, uh, everybody knows that Saul has lost it because everybody's singing that David has it. Yet, when Jonathan is presented with the opportunity to leave his father and probably become king, he chooses to die at his father's side because that is the honorable thing to do. I know, it's crazy. It is absolutely crazy. Um, it's a little bit of speculation, uh, but the exchange between David and Jonathan, it's, uh, it's implied that David was really, really close to recruiting Jonathan to come over to his side. And Jonathan says, I have to do the right thing and stay with my father. Because if I, if I abandon my father, that means I abandon you, even though I am joining you. 
It's, it's, it's fascinating to me. So he's the unsung hero. He's the one that falls. He's the one that should have been king. And actually, his character is, is probably better than David's at this time. Because David is actually a mercenary uh, fighting for the Philistines. We don't, we don't teach that in Bible school or in Sunday school. But David does become a mercenary and he fights for the, 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 you know, the bad guys, the, the giants. Okay. And then this is the part that I hit on. I'll just review this real quick on Sunday. It says uh, in chapter 13, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord. He consulted mediums for guidance. And he did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put, to him, put him to death and he turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. So those are the reasons why David or Saul failed. Any questions? Do you think Saul was predestined by God to do that? To fail? Well, you know, the people, some people like me don't believe in predestination, but yeah. the things you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah let's record it. No, I'm not going on tape. Oh, okay, <laughs> he doesn't want to go on tape. That's all right. Okay. No, no, let's let him ask the question. We won't record it. All right, what is it? No, I'm just saying is certain things we're talking about of going into exile, going into this, it sounds like things have already ordained by God and are predestined to happen. So mm -hmm. Saul was basically predestined to go crazy and follow all this yep. stuff. Okay. That sound? That's tough. All right, here we go. Um, you just opened up a huge can of worms. That's okay. No, because we can talk about it. Because, uh, uh, because it does apply to us. Because we're talking about God's sovereign will. And then we have to talk about our place inside of God's sovereign will. So um, was this whole um, story, the whole storyline, was it predestined? Was this, did God write this story and then, it's like all the world's a stage. Is God, is God Shakespeare? And then he puts his little players in. It's a good question. Does God know the future? Is God, um, um, did he know that Israel, when he freed Israel from Egypt, did he know that they were going to go into this vicious cycle of serving him and then rebelling? Serving and rebelling. Serving and rebelling. When he's called, okay, let's take it, let's make it personal. When he has called us to salvation, does he know that we are going to sin next year? Does he know the specific sins that we will commit? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, I, I have a yeah. Um, when it talks about the spirit that God sent to him at Elohim, mm -hmm. I think it kind of begs the question of who he sent to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, All right. I, is my grief in life because God's, God's tormenting you? Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, okay, let's get to the point because I think we need to answer it before I uh, get off on really crazy rabbit trails. 
All right, first of all, um, the, the evil, okay. First thing we gotta get into our head is that we are on this side of Jesus. And they are on this side of Jesus. Okay. Um, uh, it's not fair to say that um, God doesn't have feelings or emotions. We, act, we really see it. We, we see... We focus more on God's anger than we do his love when we read the Old Testament because he does get angry and smite people quite a bit. And so we, we see God's wrath poured out um, in big ways and like, oh my gosh. And then and we're like, well, how, that doesn't make sense. Would, 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 would God still do that? Because the truth about God is that he's constant. So meaning that he is the same here as he is now, okay? And so, and then the idea that he's a just God, meaning that he can't handle sin and he can't handle the fact that his creation is broken and tainted. And so he wants to fix it. And the whole story of the people of Israel is that God is, is really trying to fix the planet with these knuckleheads. And... But here's the thing, his wrath gets poured out on people and they are this side of Jesus and we think that we still feel his wrath on this side of Jesus. And that's probably one of the largest misconceptions and one of the largest lies that the body of Christ believes. Because one, God is not the author of evil and two, um, all of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus at the cross. So we don't have to experience the, whatever sin you might have committed. I mean, we're not, we're not committing the same horrible sins that Manasseh is. You know, we're not, we're not burning our children to appease the gods, and we're not murdering our best friends, and we're not doing all these other horrible things. Um, but regardless, uh, we don't have to even pay the... The, the penalty, the spiritual penalty for sin for stealing the stick of gum when we were eight and we got away with it. So, we, so the answer, the short answer is no. Like the, the evil that we experience in this world is not from God. Um, the death that we experience from the Lord, or even the wrath that we experience, not, not from the Lord, in the world, the wrath that we might even experience from the world is not from the Lord either. See, sometimes we get the wrath of Satan and the wrath of God mixed up. See, Jesus took all of God's wrath on him so that we could live in peace. Now, there is, there's, there's two reasons why we lived in a discomfort in life. One, is that um, God might be disciplining us, but he won't use evil to do it, okay? So God will not use violence to discipline us. And I've even, I've even, I've even fielded this one before. 
um, I, this is just hard, but like God won't use uh, rape to discipline us. I've actually had to field that one before. I got raped because I was bad, and this is God's punishment on me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, honey, where did you get that? Right? So we, we automatically have this twisted uh, view of God that he is the one that, that has pushed, you know, because we've been, you know, we've been bad, therefore we experience pain. Now, God will bring discipline into our lives. To, and this is, this is the other illustration that I'll give on this. God will bring discipline into our lives so that we won't continue to hurt ourselves. So years ago... Um, And I think you're probably the only one that was around then. So you probably know this person. Um, years ago, uh, there, was a, there, was a, there was a situation in church where a young man got in trouble. A minor got in trouble. And uh, he did it. And he was, he was in big trouble. And mom came to, to my dad. Because I, was, you know, I wasn't dealing with this kind of stuff yet. But I knew... For some reason, I knew everything that was going on in the church. Um, so uh, mom came, mom and dad came to the pastors of the church, and they said, uh, please pray that, pray, pray for mercy. Pray that, pray that this man doesn't have to pay the consequences of his sin. We pray that, that you know, that, that God will uh, keep this young man from going into prison. And I knew the guy, and I was thinking to myself, you know what, prison's probably the best thing for him. Ju- he, I think he should go to juvenile hall. Yeah. And now, is it painful? Uh, did he go? Um, no, actually, he got away with it. And then as in, he did end up uh, later in life not doing good things. But he didn't go to juvenile hall. Um, and so there's the, you know, there's the, there's the pain in life where it is the wrath of Satan, where it's just life, bad things happen to good people, and then there's these other parts where God will put us into areas of discipline. And I, gotta, I, just, I think we just need to know the difference between the two. Um, does God bring illness into our bodies to teach us a lesson? Absolutely not. Uh, when Paul says that he has a thorn in his side to keep him humble. Um, what is that supposed to mean? We don't even know what the thorn is. Um, did God really send that thorn in his side to keep him humble? Or is, is Paul trying to figure out life? You know? It's possible. Yeah. And sending it, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I am not 100% healed myself, and so I go crazy. If I, have I done something wrong? Is there unrepentant sin in my life? Does God not like me anymore? You know, you just, you can really go nuts. But at the same time, um, you have to say, okay, God, I don't know. You are still good. And I... You know, I will, I do do due diligence. I, okay. All right, God, is there something in, is there something that I need to pay attention to? Is there something that I need to deal with? 
what I, you know, do I need to, do I need to pray more? Do I need, do I need to intercede more? Is it, you know, I'll go through all those hoops, but at the end of the day, I have to give it to the Lord and say, you know what? It's not because um, you're bad or because um, of my guilt. Honestly, I just don't know. So therefore, uh, if I feel obliged, I'll ask you when I go to heaven. <laughs> so, that's a good question. Um, okay, the bit, the, the practical bit on the evil spirit that God sent to torment Saul. Um, it is a very difficult translation. And you almost have to be a Jew to understand it. So in the Jewish mind, everything is backwards. They're like Germans. They, 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 they do everything backwards. They even write backwards. And so, um, no, God does not command evil spirits to torment people. Maybe the ancients saw it in that way, but what happened is that because of Saul's unfaithfulness, because Saul uh, sought the advice of witches over the Lord, uh, because Saul did not inquire of the Lord, because Saul did not go get the Ark of the Covenant when he went into battle, because of all of those things that he chose not to do, God didn't send the evil spirit, but God took the anointing off. So when God, when God takes the anointing off, when the Holy Spirit comes off, guess what gets to come in? And so that's the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the mindset that we have to... So God didn't send the evil spirit. God removed his good spirit. He had to... Um, Paul says that... Paul describes it this way. He handed him over to the desires of his flesh for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul would be saved. All right, let's ask this question. Did Saul go to heaven? Probably. Started good, God anointed, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, died in battle. Before he could repent, did he go to heaven? All right. Um, we baptize you here. You, you drop into that vicious cycle thing. Um, that, that everybody experiences in the word of God. Uh, two years later, you're back into your old lifestyles, doing the same things that you did before, and you get hit by a Mack truck. Do you go to heaven or hell? <laughs> Stop. Or where has God predestined you to go? I know. It's a big, giant can of worms, isn't it? He knows your heart. Yeah. He knows your heart. Um, Let me read some more of this so I can actually get some distance on this. But this is, these are the things that I want to get at when we begin to talk more about it. Okay. Um, on Sunday, I talked about chapter 15, uh, verse 13. Uh, David tries to get the ark of the Lord. So, one, David was faithful to God. We know that about him, even though he sinned. He remained faithful to God always, always uh, submitted himself underneath the prophet. The three offices that are going on right now is the office of the king who protects and fights 
and who actually administrates justice too. So the, 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 the judicial system is underneath the king. There is the priest, the office of the priest, who um, uh, makes sure that all the, the, the liturgy, the, 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 all the church stuff is going smoothly. And then there is the prophet who keeps both of them in line for some reason and usually annoys the heck out of a priest or a, prof, or a king. Um, and so David goes and gets the king in verse 13. The reason why David failed in, in going after the Lord for success is he said, we did not inquire of him to, uh, about him on how to do it in the prescribed way. So they did not get the Ark of the Covenant in a prescribed way. They did it in a flippant way. So meaning that when you approach and inside of the Ark of the Covenant is God's word. So this, this the, the symbol of what we have in our hands was inside the box. And then in addition to that, the very presence of God was in the box. And, you know, things that represent authority and power and growth. And uh, we can't approach God in a flippant way. And that's the, that's the lesson that was being taught when David tried to get the Ark of the Covenant and then he got, his, his friend got, died for it. Um, another, uh, over in uh, verse 27, I didn't get a chance to talk about this very much, but David um, was an innovator. Uh, worship prior to David, worship all revolved around uh, sacrificing an animal, which we don't, we totally don't get. Uh, but for them, it completely made sense. I don't know if they enjoyed doing it, but they did a lot of it, and that's that was their actual form of worship. And David introduces um, a form of worship from the heart through music, and it, it's it's completely revolutionary at this time. Yeah, of course, other people had had music. Um, but as we see in Psalms, which I'm going to be teaching on Psalms this Sunday. Uh, I'm skipping around on the, the books a little bit. But David will, he will pray his, his, uh, his words to God. When we read the Psalms, we don't necessarily read it the way that it was supposed to be communicated. It should be sung. Uh, but David sings his words to God, and that is his form of worship. And... Um, He's able to understand that obedience is better than sacrifice because his friend Nathan tells him that, the prophet. He's always submitting himself to a prophet. That's the source of his strength. And um, so he's able to, he's, he understands that, that music and worship and um, this is tough for white folks, but expression in worship is key and vital. Now, I am an introvert. I am conservative. When I go to concerts, I, I just kind of sit there and I don't dance or anything like that. And David, not only does he find uh, strength in being faithful to God, not only does he find strength in 
and inquiring of the Lord and knowing the scriptures. So not only did he know the scriptures, he sung them, he developed them, he was obsessed with God's word. So not only did he do that, um, he was able to... um, force his body into an act of, of worship or into a, a, a sacrifice. And he does that when he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And this is what we read here. He, he does something that, uh, it doesn't make sense to us, but he does something that is huge. So he shows up. He's got, most likely he has Saul's crown on, He's got his royal robes on, or he's got a very fine linen robe on, and then he has the ephah, the, the ephah on here too. Let's, I'll just read it real quick. Okay, so this is verse 25. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of the units of, of thousands, they went to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Odeb Edom with rejoicing because God had helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. Now David was clothed in a fine, uh, in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites. All right, what is David? Is he a Levite? No. He's, he's, what is he? Do you know what he is? He's from the tribe of Judah. He's a warrior. Who were carrying the ark as... And as were the singers and the, the uh, Kenaniah who were in charge of the singing and of the choirs, David also wore a fine linen ephod. Okay, an ephod is something that only a priest would wear. And only priests were from the, the, the lineage of Aaron, of Moses' son. And he puts, he puts on this priest robe, priest linen. He is not a priest. And then he decides to dance in a crazy way as they march in the Ark of the Covenant. It is, it's, I mean, if anything would have offended people, this would have, on multiple levels, this would have offended people. Um, so why did he do it? Why did he decide to make himself not just uh, the king, not just the warrior, and not just the judge, but also the priest of the nation? You guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he knows that there's something about Jesus that, um, that Jesus is going to he, Jesus falls into all of these roles that we create, or while well, God creates, that we fulfill all of these offices that, that need to be filled. So Jesus is, he is a prophet, he is the priest, so he handles all of our internal, sacrificial, doing business with God stuff, and he's also, we haven't seen him in this light, but he's also the judge as the king, so at the end times, he will be that judge, and he will judge us, and he will judge the world, and he will make proper judgments. 
And, um, and of course, he's the king as well. But it, to me, it's fascinating. And he probably should have, it's, you know, it's surprising he didn't get killed for this. All right, so all the Israelites, they brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouts and the soundings of ram's horns and trumpets, cymbals and the playing of lyres and harps. Um, if they would have had guitars and tubas, they would have been blowing those. There's nothing supernatural about the instruments that they're playing. Uh, as the ark of the covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in his heart. This is David's first wife. I can't keep count of how many wives that he had. I think they quit counting too. Um, so why does his first wife despise him from the window? What is it about what he's doing that makes him Yeah. She's, why would she be jealous? Yeah. That's good. I like that. Yeah, because definitely uh, a queen could not do what he did. Who was her dad? Saul was her dad. Um... Have you, ever, um, have you ever done something and got in trouble for it, but then your sibling did the very same thing and didn't get in trouble for it? <laughs> so, that's what's going on. Because even though that Saul um, maybe at one time had a heart for God, other times he didn't, uh, he tried to pull stuff like this too. Like, he actually tried to make a sacrifice because Samuel was too slow in getting there. And um, he was punished for it. And so I think, I don't know, again, it's completely conjecture. I don't know. We don't know what was going through her heart at this time. You know, maybe, you know, you know here he is. You know, he's, a, he's, he's smart. He's powerful. He's come in with another wife at this time. Uh, she no longer... Michael no longer has power because her son and her uncles are all dead. So she has no leverage at all with the exception of her name. And so she has nothing. And um, David was good with the ladies. And so there was, I don't, you know, there was this, you know, so what was, I mean, we could just imagine what, what, what feelings that she was going through, but that was, uh, that was the, oh, absolutely, absolutely. She was, yeah, yeah, he did, that's right, I forgot about that. Yeah, who is, who is she married to? She was married to, I forgot who she was married to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy question night. Why the the fact that she's looking from the window despising him? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I, I don't know. I, I think that part of it, I mean, we get to see it, and we get to ask questions like this, so it's a part of human nature. Um, but also, I think, um, from the whole soap opera side of things, it is saying that, uh, that, that power and God's um, blessing has passed from this house to David's house. I, I think that that's what it's trying to tell us. And that, um, and that she no longer has anything that she's in essence paying the consequences for her father's sins. And, um, and you know, she is now completely uh, dependent on the house of David. So. All right, also, um, I don't know, do I want to go there? Is this a PR stunt? <laughs> what David did? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I would say that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, doing his thing. Right. I, again, we don't know the heart of, well, we actually do have a pretty good snapshot of David's heart. So I would, I think when, when you read it from, again, from insp for inspiration from a traditionalist point of view, when we read this, you say, oh my gosh, he is, he is worshiping God with all of his heart. Now, from... Um, from a secular view, from a modern Bible view, they're going to say this is a this is a publicity stunt. He's submitting. He's a, he's a solidifying his power and his leadership, and he's doing it symbolically by bringing in the Ark of the Covenant and by making himself a priest king. So, we're going to choose the prior. Yeah, Jane. Well, I was just having a reference Bible is fabulous. Yes. <laughs> and he said, I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will become even more undignified than this. 
it said, after that, the Lord closed her womb, and she never had kids. No, it's good. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, I think so. Yeah, Jonathan had a son, uh, Miss Bosheth, and he was crippled. Uh, But he sat at David's table for the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we have a few minutes. Um, Let me see if there's anything else. All right, so what do you think the major, from what we talked about tonight, I know there was a, we talked about probably too much. From the brief time that we spent in Chronicles, what do you think the major theme of, the, of, this, of this book is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Consequences for, for sin, consequences for actions. It's um, the the mentality, the slave mentality. This, the, the yeah, they never really, they never really broke from uh, their desire to be oppressed. Um, I you know obviously this is a big issue in our country, but the whole incarceration. Uh, I don't know if I should call it an industry, even though it almost seems like an industry, but the whole incarceration issue that we have, when, when, when prison or when inmates get freed, they don't know what to do. And they all, a lot of them feel more secure in prison than they do out in the real world because at least in prison, they have security. They, have, they don't have to worry about where their food's coming from. Uh, they don't have to worry necessarily about, you know, someone invading their home or whatever. So... Um, and I think for um, practically, um, when we come to Jesus for the first time, uh, it doesn't mean that, that we've left Egypt. Or sometimes we leave Egypt and then we want to go back. Um, my mom and dad always say, no, go back to Egypt. Um, and of course, the Israelites said that too. It, you know, we had fish, uh, we had, you know, we had grain. We had. Uh, it's better that we would go to go back to Egypt than die in the desert. And I don't know why that that's part of our spiritual walk. But when God calls us, there is this time where we have a release from the bondage of sin, and then, <laughs> you know, is this God being mean and sadistic? I don't think so. Uh, we get the release from the bondage of sin, and then I, you could say maybe we get tested or whatever, 
but the Holy Spirit lead, leads us into the desert. So the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tested. Uh, it, it, was that an evil act? Was God disciplining Jesus? I, I, I can't know. I mean, if it wasn't for the temptation in the desert, uh, we wouldn't have a Jesus that would be willing to pay the consequences for our sins. So, yeah, no. So, I, yeah. All right. Should we have, like, prayer request time around the table? I guess I'm going to do that. All right, any other questions? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's in there. Just a little treasure, you know. Yeah. Because I have a tendency to just stand there. You know, the interesting thing that this, my, new, my season in going through the scriptures again, um, there was a queen of Israel. She's, just, she's in the genealogies. We know nothing about her very little about her. We don't know what her reign was like, but uh, she, uh, I forgot her name, but she uh, was instrumental between trying to bring the, the two nations back together, and uh, she ruled by herself for a while. Yeah. We don't know what she, she might have, she might have done evil in the sight of the Lord. I don't know. <laughs> um. It's time. I'll tell you what, let's go ahead and close in prayer. And I want to get, I think I, I want to just kind of reemphasize the, the idea that God is not the author of the wrath in our life. Do we pay consequences for sin? Yeah, sometimes, most times probably. But God's also a God of grace. And all, what goes through my mind when, when Rod brought up the, 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 the idea of uh, predestination, that's um, something that I struggle with a lot because God is sovereign and he knows all things and he knows all knowable things. Um, so... Like if I decided to turn my back on the Lord, will he still receive me into heaven? Yeah. 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 See, I'm a I'm a free will guy. So you, if, you, if you push, when push comes to shove, I'm gonna choose free will because God is not sadistic. Um, so I believe that Saul had the choice to keep his heart soft, but he let hardness get into his heart because he was jealous of David's attention that he was getting from the people. 
So, yeah, I actually think if he would have made a different decision, the whole Bible would be different. <laughs> so, isn't that a... Yeah, yeah. Um, so, it's... Yeah, and I don't, you know, as far, we live, you know, after Jesus, we live in uh, a dimension of grace that we don't completely understand. And so, I have to, as a pastor, I have to see people in a dimension of grace, which is very difficult, because... (laughs) But, I mean, you just see people differently. I mean, especially people that have gone through hardship and pain, or maybe they've backslidden. See, the temptation when, we're, when we do church life and we see people that have backslidden, it's like, I knew it, you're a loser, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, it, it's not, when, when Paul says that you're not supposed to judge, when uh, Jesus says it, he means it. And so, although, you know, as the body of Christ, we are given, you know, certain points of accountability, holding people to a standard, whatever. But at the same time, like, like if I just had a bad day and I cursed God and got hit by a bus, I'm pretty sure I'm gonna go to heaven. I'm pretty sure that God's, that, 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 that grace is gonna cover me. Does that, that make sense? He's not a mean, vindictive God. Um, so, now if I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's a different story. But Jesus even said that you're allowed, like you have the emotional space to be angry at Jesus and to be angry at God the Father. Like you can actually go there. Like his grace is sufficient. Uh, the mercy of God covers a multitude of sins. And, I, and I, I, you know, even through all the hard stuff, again and again, yeah, it, it is about judgment, but mostly the Old Testament's about mercy. It's about God trying to fix our problems over and over and over and over again. Um, but is God the same God of the Old Testament? He is the same God of the Old Testament, but he does not deal with us the same way that he did in the Old Testament. He deals with us through his son, Jesus. Yeah, uh, that's another thing too. I mean, we have to realize too that most of this, it's, insp- it's the inspired word of God. So God inspired these guys to write it, but it's all written through pain. It, the whole thing's written through pain and loss. Like what we read tonight, Chronicles, was written in captivity. And it is, you know, it is what they saw and what God prompted them to write that was important to them, but regardless, we see, we see their personalities, we see their character, 
Like even when, like when Paul writes, you know who Paul is because you see his character, you see his, his personality coming out of the script. So it's inspired, but again, it's very unique at the same time. And so um, I, I think, you know, there has to be, it's like, it's like the Saul thing. No, God does not send evil spirits to torment people. He takes his spirit from people because of their choices. And, um, you know, if you under, you know, if you can read it from, okay, these people thought differently than we do. They, they really do. They're wired differently than we are. And that makes, that helps us get that down. All right, we need to quit. So, I, I've already blown it. I went five minutes over. Thank you.